This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, Nick Boland joins us to discuss his new article, Jokes on Them, The Democratic Party Meets Rural America, which looks at the class structure of rural America, their political attitudes, and the Democratic Party's structural inability to appeal to them and asks why. It's a critically important issue that is poorly understood and in most accounts treated all too superficially. Both parties pander to rural America for their votes, putting on cowboy hats and wearing the equivalent of flannel shirts when campaigning, as if posturing authenticity is all that's required. But why does it work better for the Republicans than for the Democrats? Nick Boland's article examines the historical, political, economic, and cultural complexities that help explain, and we get his analysis when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have Nick Bolin with us for the very first time. Nick Bolin joins us today to discuss his new article, Jokes on Them, The Democratic Party Meets Rural America. It's published in the driftmag.com. The article highlights the continued electoral failure of the Democratic Party in rural America. This is a crucial issue, and it's not well understood, and in most accounts treated superficially in caricature. Both parties put on cowboy hats and, you know, lean against pickup trucks when campaigning in rural America as if posturing authenticity is all that's required. As it works better for the Republicans and the Democrats, and much of Nick's article looks at the historical, political, economic, and cultural complexities that help explain why. He's a freelance writer. He's a correspondent for High Country News. He lives in Gunnison, Colorado, and his work appears in lots of different places, including The Atlantic, Online, Mother Jones, Politico, The Nation, and The Drift, where he published this article. I was really pleased at how wide-ranging, well-written, and enlightening your article is because it's really a critically important issue that's always neglected or mostly neglected by the left writ large. And I don't just mean the far left, I mean the Democrats to the left. And it's what you've done is a really nuanced analysis of the history of rural America and its class structure, political attitudes, and the Democratic Party's structural inability to appeal to these voters. So with all of that, I want to welcome you, Nick, to Jacobin Radio. Well, thanks for having me on. And what is the Drift versus High Country News? So The Drift is a magazine. It's based in New York. It's not very old. Only had their sixth issue is the one that this story appears in. But yeah, it's this just really excellent magazine of politics and culture and ideas that has been, I mean, at least my impression, I'm a little bit removed from the New York magazine thing, but has really kind of made a splash by its willingness to take on tough topics and publish different kinds of voices and the editors and writers there have been really great. And, um, yeah. Well, was, I'm adding glad, it to, glad to, to get to work for him. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So let's talk about, there's a lot of issues that you bring up and I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to most of them in this article because it's really important to understanding where we are today and why. And then it also raises a lot of perplexing points too. So, but I think the central theme, the point of departure of this article is that, the Democratic Party continues to fail in electoral terms in rural areas. 
they might appeal to the material interests of rural voters, at least we think so, but it's insufficient. You write, and it seems to be the case, to speak to the material interests of these voters to win them to your side. Because there's a disconnect between their material interests and their cultural proclivities. So the first is not congruent with the second. And I really hope we're jumping way into the meat of the article, but we're going to go back into explaining how we get to this point. But could you explain this point and its implications for electoral politics? Sure. Yeah, you really got right into the hard stuff. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, there's a kind of binary debate when it comes to to rural politics where you have some voices on the left broadly saying there are all these economic reasons why rural America has been, you know, kind of hammered by forces of deindustrialization and monopoly and corporate consolidation. And, you know, if we run on kind of a bold economic populist message, problem solved. And then there are people who kind of, and this is often comes from, I would say, more moderate Democrats, you know, Claire McCaskill, former senator from Missouri comes to mind, who say, you know, you kind of need to nail the culture question, appeal to cultural specifics of rural America, and, you know, people will come around and it kind of seems like a watered down version of what the Republicans tend to do. And I guess to me, in my experience, both living in a rural area and also doing a lot of reporting on these sorts of communities for high country news is that neither of those answers seems totally sufficient to explain the Democratic Party's shortcomings. And, you know, I think one of the points that I I wanted to make in this story is that, I mean, one, that if you don't understand kind of the internal class structure of rural America, it's going to be hard to make any sort of political gains there for a party that's, you know, the most recent 2020 presidential election, I think Biden lost 90% of rural counties. Mm. Um, And, you know, what I talk about is the fact that rural communities have decades of economic stagnation, you know, population decline is a constant, regardless of, of which rural area you're talking about. But that one result of this is that while a lot of people is, have suffered from this, that there is a small class of kind of mid-level business and property owners who have really benefited from this. And so county-level studies of income inequality and population trends in rural America over the past 40 years or so show that as population declines, income inequality has increased in rural areas. So, you know, a few people have benefited from and consolidated kind of the remaining wealth. And that this class of people is overwhelmingly likely to vote. They're overwhelmingly likely to be politically active. And so that when people say like, oh, you know, rural America is kind of full of people rural white working class who are voting against their economic self-interest. It's like, well, yes, those people definitely are out there. But in some ways, the more salient issue is that they don't tend to vote at all because why would they? I mean, neither party is taking them very seriously. And that the class of people who is overwhelmingly responsible for the political constitution of rural areas are this kind of... There was a recent Atlantic article that I found very 
useful for kind of thinking about my story that dubbed this kind of mid-level class, the American gentry. So they're not people who have offshore bank accounts in the Cayman Islands, but they might own warehouses or car dealerships or, you know, some sort of construction, you know, kind of material assets rather than financialized assets. And that the fact that these people are important for rural America isn't, you know, this kind of gets away from the sense that, you know, the Republican dominance of these areas is entirely like culture war grievances. Well, let me uh, go back on that for just a second, if you don't mind, because I think sure. what we're, we're probably going to be doing in this conversation is going over points in different ways. Because yeah. uh, as you said, we start at the heart of it in a way. But in particular, you know, in developing the, the question that I asked you first, you know, and in your article, you're talking about the Democratic Party and the left and how they've failed in terms of, let's call rural areas, rural America. And you say right now, rural America's dominant political culture is conservative. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but um, this has to be the point of departure for any attempts to reach rural voters. And one that needs to present material interest in the context of the political culture. And you maybe you don't want to answer this directly right now, but the question obviously is how this can be done. And then, of course, in taking that into context, you know, we have to ask, what is it that the Republicans are doing that the Democrats aren't? And you start the article, I think, by talking about Lauren Boebert in Colorado, who is not in a deep red area, and then about how every single you know, on both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans come to rural America wearing faux cowboy hats and slinging guns, pretending or thinking in the most condescending way that this is going to appeal. So I guess maybe coming back to the question that I'm asking, given that the dominant political culture, as you say, is conservative, what can be done and how come they can't do it? Yeah, the the answer to the question of what can be done is one that pundits have weighed in on endlessly, I think, since Trump's election and no one's had a good answer. I don't have one myself. But I I do think the the kind of limitations of the debate are pretty clear. I mean, what you say is right, is that there's this kind of endless line going back to Reagan, you know, riding a horse around and George W. Bush and his pearl snap shirts and the kind of cowboy vibe during the Iraq war of Republicans doing this. And, you know, in this day and age, got, I give a couple examples in my story, but Tucker Carlson's new show, he's got this kind of like log cabin atmosphere and he's always wearing a flannel shirt. Donald Trump Jr. always wearing hunting gear. And I brought up, you know, when we were kind of talking earlier about the, the fact that there's some Democrats out there who kind of say, you know, the the failures of the Democratic Party in these areas are culture, like you kind of got to nail the cultural aspect, you know, that's kind of a vague term, but the, the response often seems to be, it's like, okay, well, we need to wear cowboy hats too, or we need to wear hunting gear, or we need to have guns in our ads. And, you know, the fact that they're kind of trying to do a little bit, like the GOP cultural politics, just nicer. The fact that that doesn't work, I don't think should be a really much of a surprise to anyone. And when it comes to kind of the, it's like, okay, you know, let's talk about the material economic causes here. You know, I think one thing that's, that's important to realize is that, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of rural voters who are conservative and 
that there's evidence that these economic trends that have have really kind of hollowed out rural economies in recent decades if someone's conservative in the sense of like they think the past is better than the present it's like well they might not be totally wrong about that even if that might be tied into like loss of certain privileges or loss of property that not many people tend to own and Well, let me just come in here for a second, because we took a deep dive in and I think we need to come back out. But one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your piece and the various people that you were describing, Nick Bolin, and that is, you know, thinking back to reading Sarah Smarsh's book, Mm -hmm. Heartland, where she talks about why she and her family supported Republicans but got nothing from them. And you begin your article talking about what Thomas Frank gets wrong and what's the matter with Kansas. And then, you know, you go into what an economic populist program might be. But I think just going on that point, because I asked you about what it is about rural America that is conservative culturally, but at the same time does not appeal politically to what the Democrats tend to propose or not propose. And maybe in answering it, we should go back into the structure because you started to talk about the division of classes or say the class structure in which there is this small rural gentry, but these are the people that tend to rule in these areas. And you also mentioned that there aren't as many farmers left. So maybe in in looking at some of that, we could start to go back into the history that would help us understand how this rural elite came about that you call the rural gentry and how their culture tends to dominate. Sure. So, and I mean, the story I tell in this article is obviously not the only one, but, you know, I guess I do think it's important if you want to understand the political makeup of these areas today, that there's a history of monopoly and economic consolidation that I think is kind of neglected and so, you know, kind of starting at the, the beginning of the 20th century between farm crises at the turn of the century leading into the drought that led to the Dust Bowl in the 20s and then going into the New Deal, which, you know, is kind of held up as this pinnacle of progressive policymaking, which there's something to that. But also, you know, it had this enormous fallout in rural America where many like smallholders and small family farms were were bankrupted because of price and production controls implemented in the New Deal. And then combine that with some government subsidies, some modern agricultural giants like Tyson Foods, for example, mm. came out of the New Deal. And, you know, kind of the modern big consolidated agribusiness companies, a lot of them, whether literally or in the trends set about by the New Deal really have their roots in policy decisions by uh, the Roosevelt administration. And then, yeah, throughout the rest of the century, it really is this kind of story of consolidation and corporatization of agriculture, which has slowly reduced the number of farmers in the U.S. from about 6 million at the turn of the last century to about 750,000 today. And that's people who own the land and make a majority of their income from farming. So that doesn't count farm workers, for example, and (laughs) people who lease land. So yeah, between those trends and deindustrialization of kind of small towns surrounded by rural areas, they're really kind of concrete ways in which the 
trends that kind of affect all of America are really kind of acute and specific in rural areas. And yeah, the fact that the Republicans and Democrats are kind of playing different sides of the same coin of this cultural politics thing going on is, it seems like both are ignoring how we got here today and Republicans don't have to because they continue to win and Democrats (laughs) don't seem to be able to come up with a different strategy. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, when it comes to these voting patterns for this story, I relied somewhat on the writing of the great Mike Davis who tied kind of these local and regional capitalists who in the sixties and seventies, you know, became really activated on like single issue voting, like busing and abortion in often in the Sun Belt and the growth of those states and those economies to the rise of Reagan, kind of the modern Republican Party. Meanwhile, in the 70s, voting by middle and lower income people plummeted and has kind of never recovered. And, you know, Davis shows that part of the reason for this is why participate in a political system that's It doesn't give you anything. Fails you. And so, you know, between that and then, you know, the Senate and the Electoral College and the, you know, structural things that tend to favor geographic over population bases, you know, there is this class of people who benefited from these trends in rural America who have this disproportionate influence on the political makeup of these areas that, yeah, I I don't think that's. Well, I think we should. It's worth, you know, this is worth maybe even belaboring this point a bit because it's very, very important. And that is, you know, this, what you began to talk about, Nick Bolin, and that is this huge consolidation of farmland so that there's this huge class divide between this tiny layer of farmers that is most of the resources and others. And you explain that. And I think your overview of the uh, New Deal is is really enlightening. And in, the, in your article, it is too, because most people probably do not know how badly off the small farmers were as a result of the policies of the New Deal. And then the other part about it is that I guess your implication is that, you know, Democrats should be taking this into account when they try to appeal to people living in rural areas outside of, you know, the appealing to the rural gentry. We're going to get into this toward the end of the interview, I hope, was is the Democrats in capacity to do so. But I think your development of the class relations in the countryside literally since the founding gives a big sort of clue. You talk about, you know, the fear, uh, the constant fear of resource consolidation, which later caused big shifts. And then, you know, because I mentioned Sarah Smarsh's book, well, she, she was born in 1980. So she's really literally talking about what happened in the 1980s. And this is a really, as you say, crucial and recent historical moment that's often neglected. So in terms of looking, and of course, for all of us who are looking at, you know, where the Democratic Party went in a neoliberal direction and how the Republicans have survived by not appealing to their economic program, but to their, you know, to their overall social wedge issues and and other things, I think this would be a really important point for you to help us understand how we got here. And that is to look at what happened in the 80s in rural America. Sure. So in the 70s, in part driven by how the U.S. was, there was a kind of an explosion of demand for grain globally in the 70s that really kind of pumped up the already pretty strong trends towards increase in farm 
size and, and production. And in the eighties, you know, mix of drought and prices declining and, you know, some other trends, there was just this and bad loans being taken on by farmers who were kind of being pushed in that direction. There was an enormous wave of foreclosures and bankruptcies all across the country. So farm crisis of the 1980s lasted, you know, most of the decade. And I mean, it's just completely devastating to rural economies. And I can think of multiple people I've met randomly and and also just while reporting in Western Colorado, you know, the loss of the family farmer ranch or Mm -hmm. foreclosure or something along those lines is still kind of like the defining moment and still shapes a lot of their political views. And, you know, I, I, I get the sense that, you know, this is a recent thing that is still, it's just the marks of it are all over. It's really yeah, funny you're far, saying that. I mean, economies, and it's not, yeah, it's just, it just seems neglected in the public consciousness a lot of the time. But um, I was going to say, I'm just, Nick, you know, you yeah. say it's, I understand this recent thing about it. It's, it's nearly 40 years, but it feels like yesterday in so sure. many ways. And there were all these rock concerts, you know, to save right. small family farms, farm and everybody, yeah. farm aid, right. And all of these issues that brought people's attention to it but in a superficial way. So nobody really understood what was going on. And I think that's important in terms of the way that you're describing it in developing political attitudes, because it doesn't necessarily follow that those people who lost everything Mm. would still decide to go conservative. This is, I think, what Tom Frank tried to understand, but failed to understand. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to like evaluate every single person who whose family had experienced some sort of economic loss like this. But I do think it's the case that, you know, how this sense of loss relates to like current political trends isn't always one-to-one. That the fact that the cause of the loss of the farm might be material, you know, it's economic, but how people respond to that might not have a relation to the material cause that the left, broadly speaking, would like. And so I guess one of the things I want to point out here is that if people are just conservative and that their response to these trends isn't what you want, that doesn't mean that political opportunities are gone. It just means you might have to figure out a way to talk about these trends in a way that you know makes people reevaluate. However, I do think that the Democrats, one of the things that Thomas Frank's book makes the claim is that basically the Democrat issue in rural Americas is a messaging failure. And that I guess one of the points I wanted to make is that there might be a relationship between a knee-jerk suspicion of the Democrats, suspicion of change, uh, maybe an affection for the past that might remember the past in a way that it doesn't deserve that is caused by economic forces. One of the the things that kind of helped me along here is the great scholar of kind of the American conservative mindset, Corey Robin. Mm. Um, He has this book called the the reactionary mind. And I I quote, and he says it better than I could. So I'll just read it. But he says, people who aren't conservative often failed 
to realize this, but conservatism really does speak to and for people who have lost something. It may be a landed estate or the privileges of white skin, the unquestioned authority of a husband or the untrammeled rights of a factory owner. And then he goes on. It may be a loss of something that was never legitimately owned in the first place. It may be when compared to the other things that the conservative retains be small. Even so, it is a loss and nothing is ever so cherished as that which we no longer possess. So even if the forces that took away things are economic, it's too easy to just kind of say, okay, we run on populism and everything will be fine. And I think Robin kind of pieces out the ways in which these forces do to kind of individual political consciousness in a way that, yeah, neither party really grasps in, in its messaging. One of the and ways how, and how it treats these voters more specifically. Right. And one of the ways that, you know, you do that and you've already mentioned it here, Nick, and that is to bring out just the utter decline in number of farmers and the apparent decline in the proportion of farmers in the rural vote. And you've talked in the article about what that rural electorate looks like. And you talk about, you know, people in the in small cities as well as in counties that are involved in other sorts of things as well. And, and so it's kind of important, I think, to understand what differences might be expressed politically because of the position that, you know, that they hold in small town America as well as the rural areas outside. So it's not all just farmers. But given, you know, what you've also said about the concentration of production in the hands of these giant agricultural producers, you know, this takes it back to the Democratic Party in a way. You talked in one area about an anti-monopoly approach as a potential appeal, you know, to a majority of farmers. And of course, we haven't seen the Democrats putting that forward, except for Bernie, perhaps, but maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I think you do sort of raise something that Obama did. So maybe you could just talk about it in that respect, because we're talking about why the Democrats fail to appeal here in this more complex class structure, let's say, than most people who just think of flyover America even understand. Sure. So, I mean, I bring up the example of Obama just because, you know, there is the sense that like the last time the Democrats had any success in rural America was ages ago and not relevant. But, you know, in, in 2008, he had this very specific anti-monopoly platform for rural America, specifically for consolidation in meatpacking industries of various kinds, because those are some of the most consolidated industries in the country. And that's, you know, that's saying something. And I mean, it, it worked. He won Obama swept the Rust Belt pretty handily. You know, he won Iowa, he won North Carolina, he lost Missouri by like a tenth of a percent, which seems kind of 2008 wasn't all that long ago. Um, but you know, that seems kind of unthinkable for for the party as it stands today. And then after they after Obama was elected, his Department of Agriculture started holding these public hearings all around the country to hear from ranchers and farmers. And I, I talked to this guy named Bill Bullard. He runs a an ad, advocacy group that works with independent ranchers and, and meat packers, so none of the corporate 
none of the corporate players. They're actually suing the corporate players right now for for price fixing. And he talks about kind of the the hope inspired in kind of your small ranching meat producing communities by the Obama administration. You know, this is a administration that's finally going to enforce the laws on the books, ensure that farmers can speak out against unfair contracts and negotiate for better prices and, you know, try to break up some of the monopolies. And, you know, the, the Obama administration proposed some rules. They held these public meetings, but, you know, especially as they got towards that second term, it seems like the political will to like really take the fight to Congress and try to get something done. Yeah, it's slackened off. And it should be said that, you know, the big industry groups like the Cattlemen's Beef Association were lobbying really hard against this in Congress. And, you know, Congress would introduce riders into spending bills that would block the Department of Agriculture from doing kind of corporate enforcement. And those are often led by rural state Republicans. But at the same time, there was this sense that, like, Obama ran on this. He had an opportunity to do it. And this was something they could have fought on. They could have campaigned more on and it didn't. It just didn't pan out. So yeah, it, it's this mixed story, right? Where it's like this this anti-monopoly message paid dividends in rural areas, but then if you don't follow through on it, you don't look great. At the same time, Republicans who often represent these areas were responsible for helping to kill some of this stuff. So, you know, once again, it's both parties' effort wasn't a, a full effort on the one hand and an active attempt to undercut it on the other, neither party, you know, actually doing, introducing economic policies that might make a difference. Well, it's really interesting because you keep coming back to this in a way, this bifurcated consciousness that exists and that I guess goes some way to explaining either the way that people vote or just don't participate in the vote. Cause you mentioned that most of the poorest section of rural America just doesn't vote at all. But then there's also, and I think you're alluding to it in this last answer, Nick Bolin, and that is that, you know, the Democratic Party, there's a strain of thinking that just basically says, well, the Democrats can't get rural vote no matter what they do. And so they should just simply write it off. We certainly saw that with Hillary Clinton's campaign that seemed to that seemed to sort of epitomize that idea that they think that the bulk of the country live in suburbs and urban areas and not in rural areas, and that economics and politics and culture inevitably are going in this direction of the suburbs and the urban areas. And so, well, rural people are going to feel left out and inevitably go to the Republicans and sort of so be it in a way that seems to be an attitude that the Democrats have had. And, you know, and Trump certainly capitalized on that attitude. And I just wonder, is that the way you see it, that the Democrats have just ceded this to the Republicans or is there something else going on? No, I, I, I think you bring up an interesting point because, you know, especially in the wake of Trump being elected, you get there's that little collection of Republicans, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, I mentioned Tucker Carlson a couple of times who have, who are kind of like, okay, we're the party of the working class now. You know, they, they say this all the time and there's some protectionist trade policy in there, the anti big tech stuff. And, you know, whether you look at the income of income levels and voting patterns or how they treat unions or how they, when it comes down to it, are ultimately going to bat for, corporate America, you know, it's complete nonsense. 
but it does kind of seem like the Democrats want to, like they're okay ceding that ground to them. They say, oh yeah, like, you know, the kind of post-industrial areas, rural areas, they are full of irredeemable racists. You know, mm-hmm. they don't make the class distinctions that I brought up. And they say, yeah, you know, it, this isn't absolute, but there is a kind of certain sort of liberal Democrat who is willing to say, yeah, okay, yeah, you can have the working class because we don't want them. And one of the reasons I kind of focused on the internal class structure of rural communities in this story is because once you pay attention to that, I think that like both sides of that falls apart. There's no reason for the Democrats to write off these areas. And the Republicans claim to be some sort of, you know, populist representative is complete nonsense. Because, you know, as I said, there's this this gentry class that's remarkably politically active and influential. And then, I mean, while it's true that the democratic policies for rural and, and industrial areas have been catastrophically bad and they don't know how to campaign it in these areas, you know, there are political opportunities in these areas because of this class hierarchy, in my mm. opinion. And you mentioned Bernie. And I mean, it was a really admirable attempt, right? He, he said, this is how I'm going to win. I'm going to turn out lower income, historically non-voters. Like that's how I'm going to break the grip on the primary. And, you know, I think he was paying attention to these class hierarchies that I mentioned here. It just didn't work well enough. And why that is, is probably beyond the bounds of this conversation and, and needs to be debated more than it has been. But, you know, I mean, that that's what he was paying attention to. I really like that answer. And I, I wondered, you know, Nick, if you could just maybe, maybe just give us some of the flavor of some of the conversations you have with people. Because I think you also raise in your article, you can test this notion first that all of rural America is white and that racial mm-hmm. issues don't come up. And then the other thing, you know, we're talking also about agricultural workers and how that also changes some of the complexion of what we think of as rural America. And then, you know, and you also talk about the strikes in rural America, which we've just seen and covered even on this show, Striketober and Kellogg's and John Deere. And, you know, and so there's this and there's certainly a history there of rural militancy in that regard from the New Deal on. And yet and yet and yet, you know, and this is the crux of your article that they tend to vote Republican, those who vote. And so it's a conundrum, but maybe you could talk by just bringing up some some of the conversations and the things that people themselves say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I want to start off by saying that, you know, most of my experience, like anecdotal experience is being a reporter in the Mountain West, which is completely different dynamics from the South or, right. you know, the, the rural Northeast or, you know, any other thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that the political complexity of these areas is radically under misunderstood. The most, you know, the 2020 census that we just had, it's about a quarter of rural residents are non-white and that trend is accelerating rapidly. That feels like something that is frequently left out of kind of broad caricatures of, of unpopulated areas. And yeah, I mean, I think that bringing up the, uh, the strikes was important just because like a lot of them were happening in, you know, towns in Iowa and Nebraska, you know, either towns that count as rural or kind of like little urban clusters in rural areas. And so the fact that, you know, the idea that there isn't 
labor-based political militancy in rural areas is, is, is nonsense. And I think that if you, you know, were paying attention to these strikes and where they were taking place, you were seeing examples of multiracial class solidarity. The fact that there wasn't more Democratic Party organizing around these issues, to me, either seems just like a complete strategic failure or evidence that that actually scares them, that they don't actually want to tap into that sort of energy. I don't know which one it is. I don't know which one is more damning. Neither one is great. And You go back in your article, let me just say, back to Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a difference. I grew up in the Mountain West, too, so I know that's that's not the same as the rural South or other areas that are closer, let's say, to big, big cities. But yet, I think what you're also saying is that the Democratic Party could be accused of lazy thinking or, as you're just hinting to, real structural incapability to deal with this. And the example you gave during the Obama thing was the various big, what was it, the Meatpacking Association and others who came in and said, you can't have these policies because it'll upset the structure. So I guess just go back and and kind of talk a little bit about that. And then. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I find the Jesse Jackson example fascinating because, I mean, that really was, there was some, uh, there were some shenanigans in the primaries to keep his delegates from actually making an impact in the 80s. Because, yeah, I mean, this was just as the Democrats were kind of pivoting from a New Deal labor-focused lineage to something regarding, you know, free trade, you know, suspicious or at least tamping down labor that kind of epitomized probably by Bill Clinton. But that really started in the 80s. And Jesse Jackson won 11 states in the 1988 Democratic primary. And yeah, as you say, you know, he called it this rainbow coalition for economic justice. And he famously would put on overalls and go stand arm in arm with white, angry farmers in Iowa trying to attempt to stop foreclosures by farms that were going under during the farm crisis. And he would do this while not having a kind of race-blind economic populism, but trying to show the, the shared economic concerns of dispossessed white farmers and the, you know, kind of never neglected the economic and, and social forces pitted against black Americans. But he tried to show that there was shared interest and there could be solidarity here. And I, again, back to the Mike Davis book, his account of the primaries in the eighties. I mean, it really does show that like it was, it was completely shocking to the democratic party establishment, the the success he had trying mm-hmm. to pull this off. And, you know, he didn't win the primary, but I don't think that well, they, they, they certainly didn't want to let him win the primary. And that the fact that he was as, as successful as he was, was just a, a complete surprise. And that when he went away, you know, I think, yeah, then it was Bill Clinton's party. Well, there was also, you know, a parallel that we can think of in the 2020 primary, you know, where it very much looked like Bernie was going to win. And then the more moderate the candidates in the primary consolidated around Biden. Yeah. The big surprise is that Biden has been a lot more progressive than he ran on. And he seems to have adopted a broader program, of course, because of the pandemic and everything else that promises more economic justice. And that seems to be the message here. And I guess given Trump (laughs) Mm -hmm. and given that, you know, we're coming into midterms, 
Uh, not quite yet, but but all the predictions are is that the Republicans are just going to sweep the area. And I just wondered, like in your, you know, in your final comments, perhaps how you see that. And do you see the your neighbors, you know, the people in your state and elsewhere as permanently on the side because they're kind of raising a finger to the elite that's done so badly by them? And then they choose one form of the elite over the other. How do you see it? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't look like it's going to be good for the Democrats <laughs> during the midterms. I mean, yeah, I, I think that the the polls that I've seen show, you know, just a tremendous amount of apathy when it comes to the Democratic Party writ large. I think that's pretty understandable at this point. But, you know, from the Democratic perspective, you, you know, you kind of got to control what you can control. And one of the things is the candidates you run and the messaging you choose. And this is something I lay out in the article is that, you know, there are many examples in this election cycle and in recent ones under Trump where, you know, it's, it's like, can we just do what the Republicans do with kind of like cultural messaging, but (laughs) remain Democrats about it. Um, yeah, no teeth. Yeah, and it's you know I I'm not a strategist and I don't really have a desire to be, but that doesn't really seem that doesn't really seem like a winning uh, a winning tactic. So yeah, I mean I don't know things change, but uh, it it certainly doesn't look like they're coming into the midterms with very much momentum. I guess the final little question because you go into it, and that is Lauren Bobert, who's from your state, sure. the gun toting you know, super far right, member of Congress now. And is she going to win in her district? You say that there's a lot of problems there. Are people happy with that kind of extreme version? Yeah, so she's she's my congressional representative. And there's a pretty strong Republican primary opponent from this guy who, you know, it's kind of when you get down to the local and state level politics, you get these kind of weird political figures who don't really fit into his name's Don Corum and he's a just kind of a long time Western slope guy. And he's, you know, he's a Republican, but he's, he's kind of got some idiosyncratic policies in there and he's just been around forever. And a lot of people know him. And I've, I've definitely heard people who have no particular love for Biden, but who say that they're going to, because if you're an independent voter in Colorado, you get both ballots for the primary who say that they're going to vote Republican just to, to vote for him. But there's a lot of people who really love Bobert. You know, I drive around, you see a lot of Bobert signs in certain parts of, of this district. But as you say, I mean, this this Western Slope district that she represents, it's, it's not super red. It's, it's pretty purple. And it was represented by, there's kind of a, a, a model Democrat for a number of Democrats from the more Hispanic majority, Latino majority, Southern part, Southwestern parts of the district, kind of closer to New Mexico had, have had a lot of success holding, holding these seats in the past. And yeah, it just, I guess I, I don't know what the Democrats are supposed to do, but it does feel like Ober got 51% of the vote in 2018. And, you know, if they kind of figured out the right candidate, figured out the right way to talk to people in this district, it just doesn't seem like she would be all that formidable of an incumbent for 
a variety of reasons, uh, a long list of reasons, but it just doesn't seem like they've figured it out. And the state politician who they had picked to kind of became the early favorite in the race had kind of a tenuous claim to residency in the district that has gotten weaker throughout the year and is now out. So now they don't really have, they kind of throw all their chips in with one person and now that person's out. There seems like they're a little bit stuck. So if I had to, if I had to put money on it, Bobert will be reelected. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much. And you know what you just said about like tenuous connections to residency. We've certainly seen that in a lot of candidates in, uh, well, not just rural America, but certainly in my home state in Wyoming, elsewhere as well. So I, I want to just tell the listeners to look at your article because it's really, it's really, as I said, very important and takes a systematic look at the class structure that gives us some idea about the political culture and political divide. That article is called Jokes on Them, The Democratic Party Meets Rural America, and it's at drift.com. Is that right, Nick? It's the, one word, thedriftmag.com. Thedriftmag.com. The Drift is awesome, and yeah, you listeners should check it out. Thank you. And the article is awesome. And I want to thank you so much. And maybe we'll check in again, you know, around the midterm time and see if if anything's done differently and if there's any different outcome. But thanks for doing what you do. Uh, Nick's a a freelance writer and correspondent for High Country News Magazine, lives in Gunnison, Colorado. And check out this article. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Thank you. Great fun. 